0: from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're very happy to welcome back Mac Weldon as a sponsor for this SpyCast. Mack Weldon is a clothing company that is looking to reinvent men's basics and how we shop for them. T-shirts, undershirts, socks, underwear, hoodies, polos, and shorts. So thank you for continuing to be part of the SpyCast family, Mac Weldon. We appreciate your support of our podcast. So I'm joined today remotely from UK by Sir Max Hastings, who's an author, journalist, and broadcaster, whose work has appeared in every British national newspaper, He has written regularly for the Daily Mail and Financial Times and reviewed books for the Sunday Times and New York Review of Books. He has published more than 20 books during an over 40-year writing career, among the most recent of which are Catastrophe, 1914, All Hell Let Loose, which here in the United States was released as Inferno, Did You Really Shoot the Television, A Family Fable, Finest Years, Churchill as Warlord, 1940 45 Armageddon, The Battle for Germany, 1944-1945, which is a classic book, and Nemesis, The Battle for Japan, 1944-1945. to 1945. He spent most of his early years as a foreign correspondent for BBC TV and the London Evening Standard, reporting on 11 conflicts, notably including Vietnam and the 1982 South Atlantic War, which inspired Battle for the Falklands, the 1983 bestseller he wrote with Simon Jenkins. He was editor and then editor-in-chief of The Daily Telegraph from 1986 to 1995 and of The Evening Standard from 1996 to 2002. His newest book, which is already a number one bestseller in the UK, is The Secret War Spies, Ciphers, and Gorillas, 1939 to 1945. Welcome, Sir Max. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at Spycast.
1: Hi, great to talk to you. So, I, I
0: asked authors two basic questions at the beginning uh, of these podcasts when I'm talking to people who have dealt with intelligence history. And the first one really focuses on why you chose this book. I mean, we talked in your bio about your long history of writing. Why, after all these years, are you tackling a book on intelligence?
1: Intelligence was the one aspect of the Second World War that I'd never written about, and obviously it played a very important role. To me, one of the flaws in many of the books that's written, whether about code breakers uh, or about espionage, is that they tell wonderful stories about what spies did and what they found out or about what the code breakers learned. But they don't answer the question that to me is the one that matters. How much did they change things? How much did they influence events? It doesn't matter how clever code breakers were or um, how brilliant were spies' coups, but did they change events? Did they make things happen on the battlefield? I'm mean, The sort of thing that fascinated me uh, I've always, like everybody else, had a huge admiration for what was done by the code breakers at Arlington Hall and Bletchley Park um, and at Pearl Harbor. Um, but I hadn't fully understand, for instance, you take Bletchley Park, that um, we know that uh, by the middle of the war, um, the British were breaking a lot of the German codes. But when you actually get down and you start looking at the logs of Bletchley Park, you find that actually a surprising number of signals weren't broken for days or even weeks. And that even when you get to, um, to let's say, the summer of 1944, when Bletchley was in its heyday and the battle for Normandy was raging, that at that point Bletchley Park was still only cracking about a quarter of the German army's signals. And quite a lot of them were being broken um, only after several weeks, much too late to influence events on the battlefield. Now, my point here is not that what they did wasn't wonderful. Of course it was. But although the code breakers walked on water, they couldn't walk on water all the time. Right. Uh, and in the same way with espionage, Stalin created the greatest spy networks the world has ever seen that the quality of the information that the so-called Red Orchestra was uh, delivering from Germany between 1935 and 1942, when most of them were rounded up by the Nazis, was fantastic. That they were led by these extraordinary personalities uh, that Arvid Harnack and uh, his American wife, uh, Mildred, and uh, um, uh, schultz boyson the Luftwaffe officer, and his beautiful wife, Libertas, um, middle-class left-wing Germans with terrific connections they provided Moscow with fabulous intelligence about Hitler's war machine, including, especially, about his impending um, assault on uh, on Russia in 1941. But Stalin wouldn't trust spies, even when all this stuff was delivered to him on a plate. Um, he just scrawled across one of the messages from Germany, disinformation, tell um, your so-called source, Mr. Berrier, his spy chief, uh, in German intelligence to go screw himself. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's absolutely astounding that Stalin got this stuff, but he wouldn't use it. So in just the same way that with um, that uh, remarkable uh, agent, uh, Richard Sorge, in Tokyo, who managed to penetrate the German embassy uh, from 1933 uh, right through to about 1942 when he was caught, that Sorge was sending fabulous information about what the Germans were up to, to Moscow. And again, Stalin wouldn't really believe him. There's virtually no evidence that sauger's fantastic dispatches um, actually made Stalin change policy. So, now none of this means that I don't think intelligence was very important. It was. But you get a pers- better perspective on it uh, when, you, uh, when you start to look at some of the detail. And, of course, you come across all these fantastic personalities. I mean, I've always been struck with the fact that An awful lot of people who go into the espionage world, where their business and treasury, are pretty weird people. (laughs) And that applies to this day, to uh, occasionally, when I deal with intelligence people this day. Some of them are very clever, but they're not most of them like you and I. They tend to be um, unusual personalities, shall we say. And you get one guy I'd never even heard of, and this is the sort of thing that makes being a historian so fascinating, that I came across a mention of a British agent, whom I'd never even heard of, called Roll Seth. And so I asked the British uh, National Archive, I said, when I'm next in, can you come up with whatever you've got on Ronald Seth for me? And I knew nothing about Roll Seth. And when I went into the National Archive, they come up with a thousand pages of material on this guy, uh, stuff from the files of MI5, MI6, SOE, MI9, and the German Abwehr—and this guy um, was a, a, a staff officer, he was a, he'd been a school teacher before the war, and he taught in Estonia, and he found himself in 1942 a staff officer um, in the Royal Air Force uh, at a rather boring air base in the middle of England, and he had romantic ideas. So he wrote to SOE, the intelligence organization, and he says, guys, he said, I got this fantastic idea, he said, parachute me into Estonia, which had then just been overrun by the Germans on the Baltic." And I will start a resistance movement. Everybody in Estonia loves me. I'm the most famous Englishman <laughs> in Estonia. And amazingly, most people with these romantic ideas that let her go straight in the bin. 1942, the British were desperate to find ways to help the Russians. And they figured out that shale oil from Estonia was being used to fuel the Wehrmacht in its siege of Leningrad. So they embraced Ronald Seth. They train him, October 1942, they send a, 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 an aircraft, Halifax bomber, on an incredibly long 13-hour flight to Estonia, they parachute Roland Seth. Nothing heard of him. Nothing. Well, that happened to a lot of people. I mean, Seth was just parachuted somewhere near a farm where he said he knew the farmer and had taught his son English. Well, um, the next that Seth is heard of, 1944, he seen a Luftwaffe uniform in Paris. And it turns out that this guy fell almost immediately into German hands and he's trained by the Abwehr, the German Intelligence Service, to parachute back into Britain. And um, in 1940-44, um, after the, uh, the the British and the Americans, the French, liberate Paris, that um, a Frenchman comes up to a British officer in the street and he says, uh, um, you are British? He said, I have a letter for you. And he hands them this letter, which is addressed to the war office in London. And um, the letter is duly delivered to the War Office and all this stuff is the National Archive. And the letter says, Dear Sirs, you may think that I've become a german agent, but actually really I'm still working for Britain. Well, um, he said, I decided that even though Paris is about to be liberated and I could escape, I'm really doing better work if I just stick with the Germans. <laughs> and he goes back into Germany and uh, the next he's heard of is in British prisoner of war camps. Um, uh, working as a stool pigeon for the Germans and he saved his last trick for last that um, about a month before the end of the war the the British Embassy had banned um, Switzerland neutral Switzerland knock on the door door opens I am Ronald Seth of SOE I must see the ambassador I must be flown to London at once uh, to see Winston Churchill because I'm bearing peace proposal from Himmler well, anyway, this guy's flown to London, but of course he did not get to see Churchill, and he spends the next few months being interrogated by MI5 and MI6. And at the end of it all, they end up absolutely emotionally exhausted by this guy. They say he's a fantasist of heroic proportions. They can't decide what he's telling them is true and what is false, but they still can't decide whose side he was on. And this guy eventually disappears uh, into civilian life, in the end, the only reason they don't him for treason is because they don't want intelligence services dirty washing uh, um, laundered in public. Um, and the last this chap is heard of is making a new career writing sex manuals, <laughs> um, which he actually was quite successful at doing. Um, but this extraordinary story, perfectly documented, is there in the archives, and of course you get fascinated. Now I hasten to add, um, this guy had no influence whatsoever on the outcome of the war but he's a fascinating example of the number of agents whom, even to this day, we have the slightest idea um, whose side they were really on. The spies tend to get terribly confused about loyalties. Sorry, that's a long story. <laughs> no, no, it's perfectly
0: fine. I, I think that's what the great thing about this book is it's about people, uh, not missions, machines, secrets, people at the center. Even when we're talking about technology, it's about the people who created the technology, about the people who use the technology. And I want to really want to ask about your sources, but I enjoyed the note on sources that you included at the end. Can you talk a little bit about the difficulty here of coming up with some of this information? Because, um, you know, anytime you're dealing with intelligence information, anytime you're dealing with these kind of secret operations, you don't always
1: consider your sources reliable. Uh, Yeah. I would say, having read hundreds of memoirs, uh, by because one has to remember one of the things with intelligence, the story I've just told you about Ronald Seth was unusual because it's all documented. Most of the stuff, and especially the Russian stuff, which I've written a lot about the Russians because nobody knows about it, that there isn't any reliable um, um, hard information. You're overwhelmingly dependent on people's personal testimony. And you end up, after reading all these memoirs, and this applies whether they're Russians, Americans, um, British, German, or whatever, When you read their accounts, both their reports and their memoirs, written long after the event, you figure that about 50% of what they're telling you is probably true. But which 50%?
0: Right. I mean, these these guys are
1: liars for their jobs, yeah. This is the hard part. And, uh, for example, fantastic guy. I mean, what I always try to do in my books is to write about things that people don't know about already. So I've concentrated, I've written a lot about the Russians. Amazing guy, Pavel um, who became one of uh, Stalin's principal spymasters, who earned his credentials in Stalin's eyes in, uh, before the war, when um, he went to meet, he, he penetrated a Ukrainian nationalist group in Western Europe and he turns up uh, at a bar in Rotterdam to meet this Ukrainian nationalist leader and he presents him with a handsome box of chocolates adorned with the Ukrainian crest um, and disappears down the street. And two minutes later, there's a loud bang and this um, box of chocolates has blown this wretched Ukrainian nationalist leader to pieces. Um, now, Sidor Platov's account of himself, again, we've got enough evidence to know that about half of it, the amazing uh, stuff that he did during the war is true but it's very hard to be sure about quite a lot of it because um, as we don't have access to the Russian intelligence archives, um, that you just have to try and figure out as a matter of common sense. Now, there's one story that's unusual, which I was able to get across bearing on. Sudoplatov described in his memoirs, which are a fantastic reading, fabulous reading, um, how Stalin uh, pulled off um, one of the most amazing deception ploys uh, ever. Um, and this story was an operation called Monastery. The Operation Monastery, um, in 1941, a um, young Russian called um, Alexander Demyanov skis into the German lines south of Moscow. And he says, Hooray, wonderful to see you. I am a an, an pro Hitler, um, anti Soviet uh, agent from a Russian noble family and all I want to do is to help the German cause. And the Abwehr embrace him, and they train him, and they parachute him back into Russia, and a week or two later he announces he's become a communications officer at Red Army headquarters. And for the next two years, he sends fabulous intelligence to the Germans. And Reinhard Gehlen, Colonel Reinhard Gehlen, the head of German intelligence on the Eastern Front, whom the Germans considered their finest intelligence officer of the war, Galen regards um, the network of which Demianov was a key element, which reported through a guy called Agent Max, um, as his best sources are on the Russian side. Well, all this stuff that um, Agent Max and so on was sending to the Germans had another audience in Britain, because through Bletchley Park that MI6 was accessing all this stuff and they were absolutely amazed uh, by the stuff that uh, was being sent. And um, after the first few weeks of this, that the British officer who was in charge was a guy who, after the war, became a famous historian called Hugh Trevor Roper. And Hugh Trevor Roper and his team uh, in the British Secret Service, they tell the Russians, you have got um, a security leak the size of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> um, and the Russians do nothing about it. So um, the British conclude, aha, Agent Max must be a double working for Stalin. But then comes um, Stalingrad. Greatest battle of the Second World War. Um, that uh, Operation Uranus where um, the Red Army um, conducts a brilliant double envelopment uh, of the German Sixth Army um, turns back the Russians transforms the whole story. Now at the same time as Operation Uranus uh, that there's another Red Army, Big Offensive, further north, are uh, codenamed Operation Mars. Now, historians have heard much less or said much less about Operation Mars because it was a bloody failure which cost the lives of 77,000 Russians. Operation Mars caused the British to conclude that it was impossible that Agent Max could be a double because Agent Max had told the Germans that Operation Mars was coming, uh, enabling the Germans to shift forces up to meet it Away from Stalingrad, though. Yeah. The, 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 the British reason, well, the, the British who are citizens of a democracy and reasonable men and so they say, you don't sacrifice 77,000 of your own men to promote a deception. I mean, the British the Americans did some very good deceptions, but they didn't do anything like this. Um, but the evidence now seems clear that they did. Now, Pavel Sudoplatov describes this in his memoirs and how they ran this operation. And we might have been hesitant about believing Pseudo-Platon, but then again, here am I working in the National Archives and you find, well, first of all, you can cross-check to Freiburg, to the German archives in Freiburg. And there you find all the copies of Agent Max's uh, uh, dispatches to Reinhard Gehlen, but then you will find copies of these same messages in the British archives, which Trevor Roper has been reading. And it's fascinating to see Trevor Roper's reports all through the war. And Trevor Roper, at the end of the war, wrote a final report on what he'd been doing. And he said, I still can't, even now, in April 1945, figure out what went on. Because, of course, the Russians wouldn't tell the British anything at all about any of this. Um, But uh, he said, I'm still not satisfied about Agent Max and whose side he was on because he said the information was too good and it came too regularly and from too many sources and it was all too, he said, real spies don't work like this and so on and so forth. And I say, now, the evidence seems plain. Pavel sudoplatov was telling the truth. And um, this operation, this deceit, deception, Operation Monastery, was one amazing, perhaps the most amazing deception story of all time. Um, but this is that's an unusual one because you, we, you do have the cross-bearing on right, this. You right. are able to figure out what's what. A lot of this stuff, you're left simply scratching your head. I mean, for instance, another issue you scratch your head about. I've written in my other books that in my view, there's absolutely no doubt that the German army, the Wehrmacht, was the most formidable fighting force of the Second World War, perhaps of all time. Uh, man for man especially when they'd lost the air power and lost everything else, the performance they put up was absolutely amazing, albeit in one of the most terrible causes in history. But there's a curious sort of contradiction that while the Wehrmacht was this brilliant fighting force, the Allied war machine, the British and American whole war machines, were incomparably better than the German one. And German intelligence was uh, fantastically incompetent, especially from 42 onwards. First half of the war, um, they did surprisingly well, again, I've written about this because nobody else much has, that um, it is remarkable. Actually, that's not true. Um, uh, David Kahn wrote brilliantly about some of this in, in his book, Hitler's Spies. But most people don't pay much attention to um, the fact that Hitler had his own Bletchley Parks. And um, some of, although they weren't as good as the uh, British and American Bletchley Parks and Arlington Hall and so on, um, between 1939 and 42. Um, they were getting some really good results. I mean, in 1940, um, German code breakers were breaking about um, 2,000 British naval messages a month. And even as late as 1943, the Germans were still getting some pretty good code breaks into Allied Atlantic convoy codes. So it, the, the, the code breaking war wasn't quite as one sided. as um, some British people like to kid themselves. But one thing that the the Allies did much better, the Allies were brilliant, both the British and the Americans, at exploiting civilians. That um, the British and Americans got the absolute cleverest people in their societies into um, um, running the the war efforts, and especially into intelligence. Whereas um, the, the Germans, for instance, all right, they recruited some very clever professors of mathematics, Um, to work on their code breaking but they insisted on putting them in Germany army uniform and making them um, corporals and uh, on the whole professors of mathematics in Germany did not like being corporals whereas at Bletchley Park or Arlington Hall or whatever um, that um, it was understood that you had to use clever civilians for what they were and I remember very well when I was a young uh, a young journalist and I really only didn't have, a long time ago now 35 years and uh, Um, I read the first volume of the British official history of wartime intelligence. And it's also a very clever uh, Cambridge uh, professor called Harry Hinsley. And he worked at Bletchley Park himself. And I went to the launch party for the book, and this is sort of late 1970s. And here am I, very young and green. And I went up to Professor Hinsley, and I said, Professor Hinsley, um, I've read your book. And I get the impression from it that you think that the British and American amateurs just recruited for the duration of the war did much better than the career secret service professionals and hensley looked at me with some not quite contempt but some steady he said he said well, of course they did he said you wouldn't want to think that in peacetime the cleverest brains in your society were wasting their lives in intelligence and actually i always thought this was a very important point that um in peacetime you can't snatch your cleverest mathematicians and your most brilliant chess players and tell them they've all got to go work with the CIA or uh, uh, NSA or whatever it may be. You've got to make do with people who are prepared to do the work, um, whereas in the circumstances of a world war, you can get the most brilliant people in your society, and um, that enables you to do some really amazing things.
0: I want to take a quick two-minute break to tell the listeners about Mac Weldon. No matter what brands you've been buying in the past, Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now, and will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you'll ever wear. Mack Weldon is about the fusion between old-school quality and modern-day technology. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. This is one of the most user-friendly websites around. It takes no time to order a variety of cool products. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which in English means they eliminate odor. We're now in the dog days of summer, when here in D.C. the feels-like temperature is 20 degrees higher than the actual temperature. Thank you, Font, for building the capital city on a swamp. You can't change the weather, but you can change the clothes to deal with it, and you won't be that guy who is stinking up the metro on a hot August day. The Silver Line uses ecstatic antimicrobial technology, which has been proven by U.S. Special Forces, NASA, and Olympic athletes under the most extreme conditions. The fiber is actually created by combining pure silver with cotton. The silver's natural antimicrobial and anti odor qualities are woven throughout the entire product. It is not a chemical formula or finished treatment, so it never washes out. MacWeldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you, no questions asked, which means there's absolutely no reason not to check them out. So go to macweldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. That's macweldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code SPYCAST. Speaking, speaking of brilliant people, um, you, you write a lot about one of my personal heroes, my background is scientific and technological intelligence, and a man named Arvey Jones, Reg Jones, who is not as well known here in the United States as he is in the UK, and what I love about the story is as so many were at the time, he was really thrust into one of the most important roles of the war as a kid. He was in his mid-twenties, and he turns out to be key in discovering what was going on technologically with the
1: Nazi war machine. But this is what I mean about um, exploiting the clever civilians. Churchill was very good at this. First of all, Churchill had a more brilliant understanding of the value of intelligence than any other war leader. Um, But he was prepared to make the best of them. And of course, as you rightly say, Reg Jones, extraordinary figure. Um, whom I met late in his life and uh, and uh, one of my heroes as much as yours. Inevitably, in the United States, we all tend to make the most of, of our own national heroes and and Ray Jones was British. But, yeah, what is amazing is that in 1940, um, when the the key issue for the British, who were taking this terrible hammering from the Luftwaffe under the Blitz, key questions about... Um, how the, the Germans are managed managing to organise their uh, navigation and their bomb aiming and R.V. Jones uh, as a result of brilliant deductions I forget how old he was then, about 26 <coughs> um, and R.V. Jones uh, working uh, uh, at the Air Ministry and a sort of at the interface between the Air Ministry and the Secret Service, he figures out that they must be working on these navigational beams the so-called Nicobine beams and so on and so on uh, but some people are very reluctant to believe him. And he's called to a meeting at Downing Street with the Prime Minister. And he sits there around the table with Winston Churchill. In those days, uh, the, the, the best weapon that Britain had got. Even though one of the tiring uh, figures of the world. It's almost unthinkable that um, Stalin... Or um, for had Hitler or Mussolini or Admiral Tojo in Tokyo, would have been willing to sit down and listen attentively to what a 20 something year old had to say about um, this wheeze by which the, um, the Germans are navigating their way to Britain. And Churchill concludes that um, Reg Jones has got to be right. And Churchill says, we got to do this. And, um, and Jones explains that it is possible to jam the beam transmitters, which, of course, the British did, and the British were able, effectively, to jam them. But it's the willingness of what was then one of the towering figures in the world to sit down at the table and listen to a young man like that. Um, that's what made the Allied war effort, because the Americans played you know, many of the same games and brilliantly well, um, that... Um, You've just got to say, uh, what can we learn from these people? Well, and look at it with a completely open mind. Right. But Red Jones was a quite extraordinary figure.
0: Well, you, you see something very somewhat similar to it. I mean, we're not talking the level of Churchill, but someone, Chester Nimitz, is, is a, a huge figure. And he was willing to listen to a man named Joe Rochefort, who no one took seriously except for Nimitz. And this is the key, for the American code-breaking team, especially in the Pacific. He is the key guy. And of course, the big battle that Milo people know about, Battle of Midway, he's the man whose team really turned that around in the Pacific.
1: No, I couldn't agree more. That um, uh, In my book, uh, I've said if, if you look at intelligence in the round through the war, that one has to say that probably, given the fact that Midway was uh, the turning point of the Pacific War, that this was, that Rochfort's achievement uh, not only In his team are figuring out that Midway was the target but also Rochford himself being able to persuade Nimitz that this was the case uh, which also as you so rightly say reflected terrific credit on Rochford uh, sorry on Nimitz that um, that was one of the supreme uh, code breakers achievements and of course interestingly really um because the, um, the Japanese codes proved in many ways harder to break the, the, uh, than the machine ciphers that the Germans used, that really, uh, although it was a huge another huge achievement by the code breakers that they got into the so-called Maru code in 1943, the, uh, the Japanese merchant ship code, which enabled uh, American submarines to devastate Japanese commerce, that really... Um, that one break in June 1942, May, June 1942, about Midway, was an almost unique achievement as far as getting into the uh, getting into those uh, Japanese Navy cars. But, of course, the tragedy was, like so many other people in this field, Nimitz was an awkward cast who nobody liked and who was always um, treated with considerable disdain by his peers in the United States Navy. And he was rewarded in the bitter... Um, infighting in the um, in the U.S. Navy for his huge achievement at Midway uh, not with a medal but by being sent to command a, uh, a floating dock in San Francisco Bay and that's the sort of thing that happens and, and that's a story the U.S. Navy did not come well out of that and it's remarkable actually that Nimitz um, didn't protect uh, Rochford and see that he got the credit he deserved and it was really only after uh, Rochford's, uh, Rochford's death when American historians really got to the bottom of this story and um, showed what an amazing contribution to U.S. victory in the Pacific Rochford had made, that he, he, after his death, got the sort of recognition that he deserved. Um, but no, that achievement by those people working in what they call the dungeon at Pearl Harbor was absolutely astounding. And um, I mean, I, I, I find, I'm reading about this stuff, and I'm completely numerous. so uh, if, if you presented me with uh, a, a load of ciphers and uh, asked me to break them, I wouldn't have the beginnings yeah. of a clue to understand, and that wonderful book of Stefan uh, Budiansky's, which is I think probably the best book on code breaking, Battle of Wits that um, Budiansky is clever enough to understand how they did it, I am not yeah. Yeah. Um, I simply focus on on um, examining uh, what sort of people did it, and what were the results of what they did, which is, is also fascinating um, but the thing, I think another point which is important to make and I've tried to emphasize that um, some people think, oh gosh, well if we were so clever and we were reading all these enemy codes, then presumably it made winning the war easy. It didn't actually. One always has to remember that you had to have the hard power to be able to exploit your knowledge in that in the first half of the war, the British on several occasions got absolutely critical information about uh, where the enemy was going to strike next, about in particular the detail in, uh, um, in the summer of 1941 about uh, the impending German airborne attack on Crete and uh, then in Malaya um, and various others, they got pretty full details of what was going to happen. But they didn't have sufficient forces or sufficiently decent generals to be able to exploit that knowledge. And so they got beat on the battlefield. And when you get on to 1944-45, it's a very interesting question. People say, well, how on earth did it take us so long to beat the German army in Northwest Europe? Even uh, um, you know, if we had all this wonderful knowledge of what they were doing. Well, of course, first of all, it's always difficult to interpret intelligence. And you have the Arnhem landings, the airborne landings, Operation Market Garden, which is a disaster. Well, of course, if the intelligence had been properly interpreted by the commanders, then they should have said, right, well, there's no argument about this. There are two German Panzer Divisions uh, um, around Arnhem and they're going to absolutely thrash lightly armed airborne troops um, if we land there but um, at that stage there was such euphoria in the high command they thought the Germans were licked and that was that and it was all over so they go ahead with the operation and they get thrashed and of course also the Ardennes there was plenty of evidence in the Ardennes about, about what the, um, Hitler was planning to do about the build up of German armored forces but nobody the, the analysts and the commanders made that cardinal mistake. They didn't try and think themselves in Hitler's mind, they thought, what's logical for us, and what you always have to do, and this applies now, today, when you're trying to fight these jihadis in the Middle East, it's no good thinking what does our logic say, you have to say what does their logic say. and. There was a, a, I've quoted in my book a rather rueful uh, British officer on the very important joint intelligence staff which worked directly uh, under the cabinet office to Churchill. Very bright officer on the joint intelligence staff and he said whenever we got things wrong in our analysis it was almost always because we underestimated Hitler's stubbornness and he added in a sort of joke after the war he said I still think Hitler would have done better if he'd done it our way. Well. Anyway, you can see he was, he realized this point, that in the end, uh, if you're going to use intelligence properly, it's always about trying to figure out the other guy's mind, not trying to use your own mind.
0: One thing that I think that you you lay out in the book that might surprise a lot of readers, and even people who are well-educated about the Second World War, is there is this conventional wisdom, this impression, that the United States and the British work very well together, and we were, especially on the intelligence side, that we were buddies uh, but thats it's really the opposite. I mean, there's significant U.S.-British antagonism during this time. They outright lied to each other. Um, you have a quote. We talked about Hugh R- Trevor Roper earlier, and there's a quote on page nine of your book if you're following along at home, and I just want to read it out loud because it's so wonderful. He says, These callow, touchy, boastful, flatulent invaders who seem to think themselves as politicians a match for the case-hardened double-crossers of struggling, tortured Europe, will they never see... That are only a great children, pampered children of the rich, among experienced and desperate sharpers. It's just so snarky. It's so, so demeaning, so obnoxious.
1: Yeah, but this is real life. Americans said far worse things about us. This is what one has to remember. First thing to say is, and I've written about this in a lot of my books, um, Charlton and Roosevelt created this brilliant, necessary illusion at the time about the Grand Alliance. All three of the major powers on the Allied side of the Second World War, the Russians, uh, the British and the Americans fought the war for different reasons with entirely different ideas about how they wanted the post-war world to come out. Now all Alliances are difficult, you have to go back to history and say making Alliances work is tough, At operational level what is astounding is how well they did make it work. That, Yeah, there was a lot of jealousy. You, know, you have to remember how could the British, who took this terrible hammering between 1939 and December 1941 all on their own and whom um, the United States took the last of its um, investments in the United States, all of its gold, an American cruiser during the Battle of Britain came to collect the last $60 billion worth of British gold from Cape Town uh, to pay for arms. Um, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of American generosity around then, it was cash and carry. Now, none of this is surprising. Um, Nor does it reflect badly on the United States or the British, it's just the way things were, but what I would say is what's astounding, if you fast forward 1944, um, that the D-Day landings, which were the the greatest combined operation in history, they were a fantastic achievement of joint Allied planning. And actually, at operational level, again, intelligence officers uh, developed tremendous mutual respect and managed to work incredibly well. Trevor Roper was an exceptionally nasty, mean-spirited guy, um, and although he was a brilliant intelligence officer, but his remarks are way over the top. But, you know, Michael Hard wrote, uh, Michael Hard, another of my heroes, who was a the great historian, who was a British infantry officer in the war. And uh, Michael uh, always says, um, the British never really understand that um, How that Americans don't really think about it. They don't hate us or whatever, they just don't think about us much at all, which is absolutely true. And... Um, We still, or even now, a little bit prey. I mean, I've met so many American officers who served in Afghanistan or Iraq who got absolutely fed up the teeth with the British telling them that they, the British, knew how to conduct counterinsurgency operations, whereas they, the Americans, didn't. And actually, both sides made plenty of mistakes, but the idea that the British had any right to patronize the Americans was absurd. But somehow, everybody makes these things work. And, um, you know, I, I, I say I don't think it's in the least surprising that there were these tensions um which sometimes exploded and certainly churchill and one thing that is undoubtedly true i think churchill by the end of the war was very bitter that after he and the british had carried the burden alone of fighting the germans up to december 41 and britain by 45 is ruined and more or less in ruins too i mean the country is absolutely broke and the United States is really running everything, and makes absolutely plain that it's determined that, as it's now got all the money and all the power, that it's going to use it. And um, none of this means that the United States behaved badly. It behaved the way all nations do what they can um, and serve their own interests. And it's true to this day. I mean, I've said in recent years to several British prime ministers, none of whom taking any notice. I say, when you go to the White House, you'll find everybody's incredibly polite to you. And they'll all treat you very nicely because Americans are very courteous people. But never forget uh, that while we have many values and interests in common, it is absolute rubbish to talk about a special relationship that in the end, both the British and the United States, we conduct our relations on the basis that all nations conduct their relations on the basis of what are in our national interests. And that's the way real life is. And that's not something to get excited about. It's just just, um, the way politics and so on are. Um, But again, I come back to this point um, and again, Michael Hard said this, who was there at the time during the war. He said, what was amazing was how well in many ways the British and Americans worked together in the field at operational level. And then the higher up the command tree you got, and the more difficult relations got. So the time you get up the generals, a lot of them absolutely hate each other's guts.
0: Well, w- one of the antagonisms that you lay out in the book is between the British Intelligence Service and the OSS. And in many cases, the OSS is working against British colonial interests. They, they see... They're trying like for us. Ho Chi Minh's a great example of this, but uh, you're, that's the French, not the British. But there are times when the Americans are promising colonial interests, freedom, and independence, and that's not certainly what the British are intending to do at the end of the war.
1: No, you're absolutely right, and there was there was this episode which nobody will ever know the truth for sure. But I think it was January forty-five. Um, American night fighters shot down two RAF liberators taking French agents into Indochina. And the British were absolutely sure that the reason that the Black Widows, the American night fighters had done it, was deliberately um, because the, the, these agents, French agents were being taken into China against uh, United States policy and wishes. Um, and in fact, Churchill had to intervene during the subsequent inquiry. Churchill had the subsequent inquiry closed down because you decided that what really mattered was to uh, keep relationships uh, between uh, the two powers going at operational level, and if it was discovered that it had been deliberate, then it would obviously do frightful damage to, uh, uh, to relations. But, you know, things, I mean, the British felt quite resentful too when, I mean, for example, um, a much decorated and badly wounded um, Indian officer, um, who um, was sent to lecture in the United States, uh, uh, in 1943, um, and this is an Indian army officer, but an Indian Indian army officer, not British. And he was absolutely dumbfounded to find himself um, being excluded from uh, from restaurants and bars in the South uh, on his lecture tour. And, um, you know, he came back and said, The British are pretty rich for the Americans' talks about colonialism when they're still operating racial segregation in their own country. Um, and there was a lot of feeling about that. And uh, also, of course, when Uh, well you know you know it all and the Philippines and uh, and um, but there was tremendous tensions that essentially the British wanted to pick up their empire again and the United States didn't want it to happen and things only changed in the 1950s when the United States decides that what matters is defeating communism whether it's in Indochina or anywhere else and so we'll let the French off being uh, uh, being colonialists. should have was a mistake too.
0: Well, let me use this as a segue because I've read that your next book is going to be on Vietnam. Is this true? Uh, so will this have an intelligence angle as well? There's so many great intelligence stories in
1: Vietnam. Oh, I mean, I'm working on it this minute. Well, actually, one thing that's fascinating: uh, all the attempts uh, to uh, to run. I mean, I just came came across. Um, uh, a, 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 a very good account by a, a former Arvin officer a, a Vietnamese officer um, describing how he was a witness when McNamara uh, uh, paid one of his early visits, I think in 66 and um, right up there with Westmoreland was asking at uh, the headquarters uh, how many agents uh, the Americans and the Arvin were running into communist, uh, communist areas, <laughs> it was told none <laughs> and of course um, Attempts to drop people into North Vietnam uh, just ended up with the slaughter of the whole lot over years. Um, it was somewhere between. It was fantastically difficult to get good intelligence uh, out of the North uh, up during the war. Um, and actually, you know what? To me is amazing. Um, it's extraordinary how history does repeat itself on these things. That you find an awful lot of the problems that occurred in uh, in uh, in Vietnam. You find occurring again. In, um, in Iraq um, and in Afghanistan um, and uh, it, it's, but I mean this is one of the things I suppose I have, um, although I was a correspondent in Vietnam for, uh, I spent quite a lot of time there and I came out of Saigon in 75 out of the embassy conflict, uh so I remember quite a lot about it. Um, but it is extraordinary uh, how much history repeated itself at that period.
0: Well, I've always seen a lot of interesting historical analogies between the Battle of the Bulge and the Tet Offensive, as both sides assuming that their enemy is beaten, uh, not expecting some kind of massive counterattack, and really getting caught with their pants down Is from an intelligence perspective.
1: Well, they did. And of course, this is true. Um, and I've got a book right up beside me right there now, on uh, um, which about... Tet as, uh, as a great failure of intelligence, on a manner of speaking it was, but on the other hand, one it, one of the things, was, uh, as we all know, I mean I was actually living in the United States at the time of Tet, and everybody, the American media especially, convinced the American people that Tet had been a disaster, and it was a disaster, but for the Viet Cong, right. the Viet Cong were apparently wiped out at Tet, and um, you know, what is extraordinary is that is the American people allowed themselves to be convinced to that juncture that um, the, the U.S. and the and the South Vietnamese had suffered this terrible defeat simply because they'd seen all these ghastly images of fighting in the in the embassy compound in Saigon and so on? But in fact, it was an absolute disaster for the communists. Um, but um, intelligence—I mean, even now. I mean, I was talking to a British Army officer the other day about the situation in the Middle East, and he was saying our understanding of the nuances of what all these tribes in Iraq and Syria are up to, and, of course, everything in that part of the world is about tribes and families, is, sure, you know, if they use their mobile telephones, then uh, the NSA and the British counterparts are picking this up in, in 20 minutes. But when, uh, as far as the, the humans, as far as trying to figure out what these people are thinking, and who wants what, and who can we trust, uh, that it's amazing that for all the billions of dollars that you spend and we spend on intelligence, that there's still a hell of a lot of groping going on out there, and our our operational intelligence uh, is still pretty flaky.
0: Well, Sir Max Hastings is author of over 20 books, all of them highly recommended. His newest book, which we talked about today, is The Secret War, Spies, Ciphers, and Guerrillas, 1939 to 1945. And he's currently working on what sounds like an incredible Vietnam book. If you're going to read through his, uh, his full uh, book list, give yourself some time. These are all large books, very comprehensive, and some of the best-researched books I've ever run into. Uh, I know for a fact, again, Armageddon and Catastrophe are two essential books for any historian or budding historian's bookshelf. So, Sir Max, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for listening in. All the very best.
0: We'd like to thank our great sponsor, Mack Weldon, for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the promo code SPYCAST. That's MackWeldon.com, promo code SPYCAST. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast, available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at Spycast. At spymuseum.org, or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week.